treatment algorithm for normal and poor-risk renal cell cancer has radically altered in the last two to three years, and I met with Dr. Dan George for his take on the reason for the heterogeneity of individual algorithms of medical oncologists. There's a wide variation in how people are using these agents, probably more so than with our IV drugs. And I think that has to do with the fact that as an oral agent, you have more flexibility. And perhaps there is a little bit of an intrinsic bias that you know patients shouldn't have to put up with severe toxicity. So we'll dose reduce these drugs sometimes, perhaps a little bit more prematurely than we might with an IV drug. And I think that's one of the challenges in this field is to encourage people to help their patients you know, maintain what they can tolerate as a full dose. There are differences. You know, serafinib tends to be a continuously dosed drug with no interruptions. And so for those first couple of months, I think patients can sometimes have a difficulty tolerating that, might get dose reduced early on. Sunitinib is given with a break, four weeks on, two weeks off. That's allowed patients to tolerate this drug, perhaps in some settings, for a full dose for a little bit longer. But what we find is there's more cumulative toxicity and patients tend to have more frequent dose reductions a little bit later on. And I think both of those are sort of the extrapolation of the clinical data we have into the broad patient population we treat in the community. Now, the other major anti-angiogenic strategy that's been looked at is, as you mentioned, bevacizumab. Can you talk about the clinical research we have available right now on that agent in renal cell? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Bevacizumab was probably the first drug in this whole class that was studied in renal cell carcinoma. It was a study by Jim Yang up at National Cancer Institute, and it's really one of the first proof-of-concept studies. It was a nice New England Journal paper. And what he demonstrated was in patients that had failed cytokines, things like Hydosol 2, that the use of a full-dose bevacizumab, 10 milligrams per kilogram every two weeks, really doubled the progression-free survival of patients over placebo. And they were able to show that this real dramatic change in the natural history of the disease was accompanied by relatively few patients achieving a partial response. So there was a dichotomy in the responses, just a few patients with what we term kind of an arbitrary partial response, a lot of patients with this somewhat more subtle minor responses, if you will, but a real change in the natural history delay and progression. Because of the development of bevacizumab in some other disease settings, I think renal cell carcinoma was one that was somewhat put on the back burner. But in the U.S., through the cooperative group mechanism, CLGB, we're able to do a large phase three study where we combined bevacizumab with interferon, compared that to interferon alone. And those results actually just came out a couple months ago, showing a dramatic improvement in the progression-free survival. And that's going to be presented at our national meeting in February. About six months earlier in Europe, a very similar design study with a placebo, so interferon placebo versus interferon bevacizumab, demonstrated similar results, about a doubling in the progression-free survival, not quite that, about 80% improvement in progression-free survival from five and a half months to 10 months compared to the interferon placebo with the Avastin. So clearly Avastin has activity in this disease setting. Whether or not that activity is truly dependent on interferon, whether that activity is really equivalent to what we're seeing with these multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or whether or not these drugs could somehow be additive in the clinical setting, I think are all the sort of unanswered questions we have today. Can you talk a little bit more about the CALGB findings? The median survival of patients with interferon alone was five months. The median progression-free survival of interferon plus Avastin was 8.5 months. And I think very similar results to what we saw with the Roche study. 
And so now we've got two large multi-center phase three studies showing a dramatic improvement in the progression-free survival. One of the challenges in this field going forward is how much toxicity is that improved survival really worth? And clearly, sunitinib, serafinib, and now interferon bevacizumab all have toxicities associated with them. To what extent do we take our relatively asymptomatic patients with metastatic disease and subject them to these toxicities? How early is early? And can we balance that in some way? I guess one of the challenges is that, you know, we hopefully work all this stuff out eventually with clinical trials, but docs in practice have to make decisions today. And I have to say, sort of standing back on the outside, looking at the minimal bevacizumab monotherapy data that we do have, but we do have some pretty credible data that you talked about, thinking about sort of what we think we know about cytokines and in terms of what they're contributing, and then thinking about the TKIs, for example, I got to say that bevacizumab alone would look kind of tempting to me if I were a patient and I were asymptomatic. Well, it is. And to follow up on the point we're discussing, you know, it probably has the least toxic profile in terms of side effects. So one of the nice things of having a very specific targeted therapy, something that's blocking just one growth factor and not a lot of what I'd referred to earlier as off-target effects. We don't see the hand-foot syndrome with Avastin. We don't see a lot of diarrhea or GI toxicities. The fatigue is probably, to a certain degree, less than what we see with the other targeted agents. And so from a side effect profile, I would agree with you. This is probably the least toxic as a single agent in terms of being able to have an antiangiogenic biologic effect, delay the progression of your disease, change that natural history, and get that improved progression-free survival with a minimum amount of side effects. The question is, is how much more effective are these other agents, and does that justify the toxicity? Does interferon, if that does improve the progression-free survival of bevacizumab alone, is that justified by the months of interferon toxicity? And I think those are questions, to be honest with you, I think are going to be difficult to answer in a clinical trial, and that's where I think the art of medicine still comes in as a practicing clinician determining to what extent, you know, your patient can tolerate that side effect profile and gain a benefit. There are some patients that tolerate the combination pretty well, but I think that's a minority of patients. So what might happen is physicians may decide to try a combination like interferon bevacizumab and drop the interferon or dose reduce it significantly if and when toxicities happen. They may decide to start with bevacizumab alone if patients are doing great maybe try adding in the interferon and working up to it. These are obviously concepts that aren't proven in a clinical trial setting but can be extrapolated from the data that we have. Do you have any sort of gut sense about how much the cytokines might add to bevacizumab in this situation? I think it's substantial. I think what's happening is bevacizumab is accentuating the toxicity of the cytokines. So I think these are primarily cytokine-driven toxicities, probably 80% of them. You know, the fever, the chills, the weight loss, the cytopenias, what have you. So these are interferon-based toxicities that are accentuated by the bevacizumab and not necessarily the other way around. So with bevacizumab alone, I think you see very few of those. Primarily, the side effects we see are going to be fatigue, hypertension, proteinuria. For the most part, things that patients will tolerate well in a chronic setting without a lot of symptoms. So I think it's something you're going to see a lot of physicians in the community choosing to try bevacizumab alone. The real question is, what does the FDA think of that? Yeah, uh, you know, is that going to be an approvable approach? Will you be required at some level to have failed cytokine therapy or demonstrated toxicity? 
or will you be allowed to treat patients with bevacizumab alone? I don't know the answer to that. It kind of reminds me of what happened in colon cancer with cetuximab, where you had to sort of go through the arena TCAN thing. But I guess my question was, how much do you think that the cytokine is contributing to the efficacy that you see with the combination? Well, that's a good question, too. And again, we don't have randomized data to answer it for sure. But I will say that in both of these phase three studies, CLGB and in the Roche study, the objective response rate, the partial response rate was in the 20 to 25 percent range for the combination, which is higher historically than we've seen in any phase three study of interferon alone and is higher than what we've seen with Avastin alone in those relatively small phase two studies. Now, there was a more recent Genentech-sponsored phase two study of Avastin versus Avastin-Tarceva. And in that study, the partial response rate, the objective response rate with Avastin-Tarceva was in the high teens. So not too far off of what we're seeing in the Roche study and the CLGB study, but still there's probably some biology there. So I do think there is some effect of the cytokines here interacting with the Avastin. But to what extent that's justified by the toxicity, I think, again, is the hard piece. And as you say, of course, the FDA and reimbursement and costs, all these things are going to be brought in as they have with bevacizumab with the other tumors. But again, kind of getting back to the oncologist in practice who has really an extensive experience with bevacizumab, colon cancer, lung cancer, now breast cancer, lots of trials out there that people are on. And, you know, I think the feeling that I've gotten is that when you do get a patient who's on bevacizumab alone in these other tumors, these patients have pretty good quality of life. You know, I think that's true, and I think you're going to see that out there in practice quite a bit. Just as you said, people are familiar and comfortable doing that, starting patients out that way. Many of these other agents, like sunitinib and serafinib, we're not using in a lot of other disease settings off a protocol. So many of the community physicians are still relatively inexperienced in managing patients with those toxicities, and those toxicities are not inconsequential. They can be fairly significant. One of the things to kind of keep in mind is in renal cell carcinoma, there's a mechanism to risk stratify patients. And by that, what I mean is that we can view renal cell carcinoma patients, like any advanced tumor patient, as either having a relatively good prognosis metastatic disease or poor prognosis metastatic disease. And it's important to remember that the reality is probably most renal cell carcinoma patients fall somewhere between the good and intermediate prognosis. Probably only about 10% or so kidney cancer patients, maybe 15%, are in this poor prognostic category. And I can explain that briefly for you. The prognosis is based on Memorial Sloan Kettering criteria, probably the most common criteria we use. There's five criteria here. They're the presence of anemia, so that's red blood cell counts, hemoglobins less than the lower limit of normal a performance status of ECOG-2 or worse, evidence of an elevated LDH or an elevated calcium. And the last one is the time to metastasis of whether they present with metastasis at the beginning or they're more than a year out. So those are the five criteria. And if you have none of those poor risk features, good performance status, good labs, a late time to metastasis, then you're in a good risk category. And those are the type of patients probably going to live several years and trying strategies like bevacizumab alone or some of these monotherapies, serafinib or sunitinib, I think make a lot of sense. As you get patients that have one or two of those risk factors, they're in the intermediate group. But if they've got three or more, those are patients that have probably an expected survival of six months or less. And that's the group of patients probably want to think about with our more aggressive agents right off the bat. So probably not so much the Avastin group there, but more, as I mentioned earlier, this mTOR inhibitor, temsirolimus, or sunitinib have both shown some activity in that setting. So I think as a community physician, not treating a lot of renal cell carcinoma, 
when you do see a patient with renal cell carcinoma, I think you want to try to begin to think of them in terms of this risk stratification, maybe not sort of make one-size-fits-all approach for everyone. And, you know, it's interesting, of course, the Temsorolinus was studied specifically in these poor prognoses. But I think, again, the oncologists in practice sort of seeing different tumors and different kinds of concepts, in a way, it's a little counterintuitive. I mean, biologically, are the worst tumors, does it make sense that they might respond better to something like an mTOR inhibitor, or is this just the function of how the trials are done? It's a great question, and we struggle with this a little bit. One question that you could turn this data on its head, and you can say, well, was it really that temsorolimus helped them live longer, or did these patients just die faster on interferon? Did interferon actually make these people worse? Well, actually, when you look against historical controls, that's probably not the case. They probably did better on the temsorolimus, but your point is well taken, Neil. This is a very targeted drug. This is a very specific drug. It's blocking one protein, really. It really doesn't have a lot of off-target effects. So why would blocking this one protein take a patient population with a really poor prognosis? You know, median survival in the interferon arm was seven months. So really kind of end-stage, last-stage, almost pre-hospice patients and make a substantial improvement, almost a 50% improvement in overall survival. And, you know, the reality is, is that mTOR is probably active not just in the cancer cell, and maybe not just even in angiogenesis, but probably even in the processes of inflammation and some of the biology that goes into sort of the poor performance status and even the processes of dying. It's quite possible that blocking mTOR is really a palliative effect in these patients. One of the nice things about that drug is it's well-tolerated even in these poor performance status patients. They were able to give 91% of the dose in this population, which is really incredible given how sick they were. And it's probably this effect and basically just temporizing the cancer progression that ultimately translated into the biggest survival advantage. What is the usual side effect profile that you see with temsorolinus, and how do you deal with it? It's an interesting drug. It's actually pretty well tolerated overall. It's given IV once a week. Some of the things that we run into, there are some allergic reactions. We've had some patients with some pretty significant allergic issues. It's rare, but we do give Benadryl up front, and certainly we use steroids if they have any major reactions. But we try to avoid that because it may mitigate some of the biology of mTOR. In addition, patients can run into rash. We see that in about 10 or 20% of patients. It can be a full-body kind of drug rash, and that can definitely be limiting in terms of giving the medication. We do see some mild thrombocytopenia, but not a lot of cytopenias. Fatigue can happen in some patients. We do get some diarrhea. Generally mild, though. I would say overall, we've had a pretty good side effect profile tolerance. The one other side effect that's relatively unclear at this point in time is a pneumonitis. And that's something that we've seen a little bit more chronically in patients. But in patients that are on this drug for a long period of time at full dose, it's actually becoming more and more apparent that that's a pretty common side effect. It tends to be a subclinical pneumonitis, meaning you'll see it on CT scan, but you won't necessarily have patients complaining of shortness of breath or cough. So how clinically significant that is right now, I don't think we fully understand, but it doesn't appear to be a dramatic kind of fulminant course. So it's something we've managed conservatively for the most part. So overall, pretty well tolerated profile, but a drug that I will say in practice so far has pretty much been regulated to the third-line setting. So patients are primarily being managed with sunitinib maybe up front, serafinib in the second-line setting, maybe some Avastin, and then maybe getting to Toracel or Temsorolimus in that third or even fourth-line setting. But even there, patients have tolerated it pretty well. In terms of the pneumonitis, what exactly do you see on the CT? Is it usually very obvious? And have there been pulmonary function studies done? 
Yeah, so people have described it primarily as a reticular pattern, so it's an interstitial pattern. It tends to be pretty faint. I don't think you see it much on chest x-rays, so it's pretty much a CT finding. Out in the peripheral, kind of lower dependent lobes most commonly. Some people have mistaken it for a viral pneumonitis, but when they have biopsied it, it really comes back as a drug pneumonitis. We've treated it with steroids in more severe cases and seen it respond. It does fade when you hold the drug does seem to be a little bit more dose-dependent, so full dose, we see it a little more commonly. And PFTs, for the most part, haven't been really dramatically affected, DLCOs and FEV1s and things like that. No issue in terms of mistaking this for tumor? You know, so lymphangiotic spread can appear like this. For the most part, the clinical course for that lymphangiotic spread is pretty fulminant. We don't see a lot of lymphangiotic spread in renal cell carcinoma. So the incidence of this, in some cases, you know, 20 30% of patients seems to be really consistent with a drug etiology. Do you think that seeing this on CAT scan is an indication to stop the drug? So, you know, that was a really good initial thought, and we did that in a lot of patients. Actually, another mTOR inhibitor, RAD001, or Everolimus, studied recently in renal cell carcinoma. We actually had really strict criteria for this, where if patients were absolutely asymptomatic, PFTs were unaffected, they were allowed to continue on through this. And we actually didn't run into a lot of trouble with that. So we actually think this is something, if you continue to monitor patients symptomatically and by PFTs, you can treat through this. We haven't seen it become kind of fulminant or anything like that. Do you think it's an indication for biopsy? You know, I think if there's any question, as you mentioned, if there's any differential diagnosis worrisome for lymphangiotic spread, certainly anybody that's symptomatic And then I think if there's any concerns of other factors, fever or other things associated with this, I would biopsy. But if it's really an uncomplicated finding, it's asymptomatic, I think it is something that you can kind of watch empirically. Any way to sort of tease out kind of quality life issues? You mentioned the fact that it seems to be well tolerated. You know, roughly what fraction of patients when temsorolinus kind of come in and really are having no problems compared to, let's say, sunitinib? You know, it's been a little bit difficult to judge, and I'll put it in a little bit broader context. When you use any of these agents in the second or third line setting, that setting seems to impact the tolerance of the drug, meaning we did a study with sunitinib and bevacizumab failure patients, and we saw a higher incidence of fatigue, higher incidence of hypertension, and other complications. Again, not statistically proven, but compared to even cytokine failure patients, we saw higher incidences than in other phase two settings. I think when you look at temsorolimus in these patients that have already been kind of heavily pretreated, and many of them already with a decreased performance status, I think they tolerate this better than you would anticipate another TKI or going back on serafinib or sunitinib. But I will say that I think the fatigue is limiting in that patient population more so. We can see some issues with renal function, and you do have to watch that closely. Many of these patients have clinical progression going on in this setting now that's more symptomatic than it was in earlier stages of diseases. So it's a little bit harder to tease out. When we have used it in the frontline setting, again, we've used it primarily in patients with poor performance status. So it's a little bit of apples and oranges comparing it to the other agents. But I would say overall, just qualitatively, you know, better tolerated than, say, sunitinib or serafinib in that setting. Now, what do we know about anti-tumor effects of temsorolinus in the other 90%, the better prognosis patients? You know, not a whole lot. And this is actually one of the, I think, just points of caution with this agent. As I mentioned, not 100% sure of the mechanism. Some people think this is by blocking mTOR, an anti-angiogenic effect, and that's why it works in kidney cancer. As I've mentioned, there may be some effects on the symptomatic patients, and in particular on 
some of the paraneoplastic effects that are going on in changing the natural history that way. Clearly, there are some direct anti-tumor effects. We're seeing some tumor shrinkage with this agent as well. But I think in good risk patients, patients that are asymptomatic, low-volume disease, that primarily don't need to have disease regression, the question is, is how effective is this, say, compared to VEGF-targeted strategies? And we don't really know the answer to that. What we have for data is a randomized phase two study looking at various doses of temserolimus in patients with renal cell carcinoma, either prior treated or not, a Mike Atkins study done through the cytokine working group and published in JCO. And what they were able to show is compared to historical controls, their poor risk patient population did much better. Their intermediate risk patient population did a little better, and their good risk patient population compared to historical controls did no better or maybe even a little bit worse. So that was the premise, the rationale for doing a phase three study in the poor risk patient population. It doesn't necessarily mean this drug doesn't work in good risk patients, but it would suggest that maybe this is not the agent to use first in that patient population. Does Temsorolinus have any anti-angiogenic activity? It does. You know, in preclinical models, it clearly does. And it's important to note that many of these growth factor pathways, this VEGF pathway, PDGF pathway, the receptors that are present on the target cells, the endothelial blood cells or the parasites, many of those signals pass through intracellularly through mTOR. So you can think of mTOR as blocking inside the cancer cell, but it may also be blocking inside the blood vessel cell and having some blood